Uh, we are going through the Bible, and we're in the book of Luke now. We're in chapter 10, and uh, starting in verse 25, that's where our text is going to begin. We're going to go through verse 37. And as uh, you guys have that passage open before you, just let me uh, pray for us. God, we thank you for this time, and we ask that your Holy Spirit uh, would be here with us uh, to minister to us wherever we're at, and the things that we are going through. Help us to uh, be mindful of uh, the things that we are not and the things that we are. And I pray, Lord, that um, as many of us may be uh, hurting in some way or um, in some way not looking out for those in need, that this passage would speak to us in regards to those things. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, oftentimes I, I, I get questions regarding things of the Christian faith and and many of those con- conversations that I have are are from sincere seekers, so that the conversations that we have are are actually uh, pretty meaningful. But every once in a while, I get I get what I would call a, a skeptical cynic, and uh, someone who just kind of wants to argue or just solely wants to point things out that are wrong or do this different or whatever. And the I actually think that criticism is a good thing, whether it's bad or good. I think it's really helpful. It helps us to grow, and, and I think that that feedback helps us grow. But what about the guy that, that that guy that just wants to argue? That's kind of what all he wants to do, and have that conversation of, of argument. And oftentimes, it's from people who call themselves Christians. That's at least what I found. Do, because I found that the people that are mo- most hostile to Christian things are actually Christians. And I don't think it's just me. Um, I, I think that, you know, if, you, if you've ever made a comment on your blog or your Twitter or your Facebook or, or something like that, or, or you've been involved in some type of chat room, some theological debate or whatever, the most cynical people are actually the people that call themselves Christians, I think. I don't think you're going you're gonna to get that from an agnostic or an atheist or something like that. It'll most likely be someone of the same faith. At least that's what I find true of myself. And the ones who are most cynical towards the ministry here at Regeneration are those who call themselves Christians. They're kind of the worst. So here we find Jesus having a conversation with someone who supposedly believes in the same God, Yahweh, but... Is this guy a sincere seeker, or is he a skeptical cynic? And I think there are two key verses within our text this evening that are going to tell us where this guy falls, and they're in verses 25 and 29. Verse 25, And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying. And then you go to verse 29, and it says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And I think what Luke is doing here is he's writing to us to clearly show that this guy is a skeptical cynic. He's not a sincere seeker. This guy is looking for an argument. So back to verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This lawyer seems to be approaching Jesus with a certain amount of respect. He's addressing Jesus as teacher. And he also asked a pretty deep question. It's not like he's asking some silly question or some sarcastic question. At least it doesn't seem that way. Matter of fact, this lawyer asked a very significant question. right? A question that pertains to all of us and it begs us to ask ourselves, have we inherited eternal life? So how do we inherit eternal life? What do we do to inherit eternal life? And if you have questions about inheriting eternal life, those are great questions. Those are great questions to think about and to have discussions about and to, to kind of talk through. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it's written that God has put eternity into our heart. That's something that He's placed in us. Now, what happens after death is a very significant thing. Why? Because we're all going to experience it. Right? The last time I checked that statistic was 100%. So this, 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 this goes for all of us. It's a very relevant question for all of us because we're all going to experience death unless Jesus comes back before we experience that physical death, which I hear is going to be October now. So, do you... Do you guys ever find yourselves wondering 
what you have to do to inherit eternal life. Because I do. I find myself wondering more and more about that. And it happened especially after I had kids. Because I love my kids and I just want to be with them forever. And if, I don't know, maybe some of you have teenagers and it's a little different for you. But mine are really young, so they're still really cute and I still want to be with them all the time. It might change later on. But anyway, so I think about these things. And I believe that I'm thinking about these things as a sincere seeker. Praying about it, thinking about it, meditating about it, worshiping about it, studying about it. But what about those of us who may be thinking about it in a cynical way? Like, ah, that's it's a bunch of hogwash, it's baloney, when you die, you die. And approaching God in, in this irreverent way. Irreverent in that He made this plan in Jesus to redeem us, to save us, so that we can have everlasting life. So, like this lawyer, I think he's kind of approaching Jesus in this irreverent way. And the reason I bring this up is because in verse 25, the verb there is really interesting for the word test. The verb test is fascinating in this text here today. Because if you look up that word, the same exact Greek form of that verb is found in Luke chapter 4, verse 12. Not a really good place to be associated with, actually. Let me read that one for you. It's about when Jesus told the devil this. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The same word. Same word. That's in our text right here. So, something to keep in mind is this lawyer is no dummy. This is actually a pretty smart guy. He's considered to be an authority of the law. He's considered to be an expert of the law. Now, not only were lawyers considered experts in the law, these guys are better than the FBI. These guys... Before wiretaps, before surveillance tapes and all these kind of things, they knew where Jesus was, where to find him. They're able to get into positions to listen to everything he said. They, they have Jesus pegged. Right, you look back at Luke chapter 5, verse 17. It says, On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. I don't know about you. I find that fascinating because they did not have cell phones then. How do they gather all these different Pharisees, teachers, and lawyers from village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and all gather in one place? This is incredible. So these guys are good at this stuff. They're good at kind of like picking people out and finding false, false stuff. And so they located him. They followed him wherever he went. They listened in on all of his conversations. This is all before any of this high-tech stuff. And so these guys also had some pretty serious ninja skills. I don't know if you've caught this before, but they appear out of nowhere. Look at Luke chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? My question is, where do they come from? They're in a grain field. It's like, poof, why are you eating? Whoa, dude, where do you come from? Right, so they appear out of nowhere. They try to catch Jesus doing things, teaching things, saying things against the Hebrew law. That's what the mentality of this, these guys are like. But this is no surprise to Jesus at all. He knew that they were going to go through this with him. And so in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, he said this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, lawyers, and be killed on the third day, be raised. So we know that this lawyer is an authority of the law. He is an expert of the law. And he was testing Jesus with a really basic question. Not a complicated one at all. How does Jesus respond? Jesus actually responds with questions. Right? So he has some questions of his own. Verses 26 and 27. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, why does Jesus respond with a question? Well, Jesus knows this guy knew the law. He knew that. He knew that this guy is an expert in the Torah, an expert in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. This guy knew 
down pat. The, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the, 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 the first five books of the Bible, these are the Jewish legal texts. So this guy's a lawyer. These are his legal texts. He knows this stuff. Not only were these their legal texts, these are also their moral texts, their ethical texts, their spiritual texts, their, their religious texts. So Jesus knew that this guy, he would know Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. He knew that, which is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And Jesus knew this guy would know Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. Jesus knew that already. Now, when a lawyer, this expert of the Pentateuch, read texts like this from the Torah, he understood that there was a direct correlation between inheritance of eternal life and obedience to the law, that there was this direct correlation between those two things. And he knew that the first five books of the Bible, those things he knew down pat. There's no question. He would not be able to be a lawyer if he did not know those things. And... Specifically, Deuteronomy chapter 6. He knows Deuteronomy chapter 6 extremely well. Why is that? Because in the morning, during their morning prayers, an Orthodox Jew, like this lawyer would have been, he would have this phylactery. I don't know if you know what those are. Those black little boxes that you see on Orthodox Jews' heads, they tie them there. It's a little black box. And within them are verses from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And they would tie those and they would pray with those things. And they would also tie them around their arms. I don't know if you've noticed that before, those leather straps. It's usually black. Always black, I think. And so they, they would tie those. And those were Deuteronomy 6 verses within those things. So he knew those verses. They were fastened to his forehead. They were tied around his arm and his hand. Deuteronomy 6 in them. So when Jesus asked him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? This guy's thinking like, are you kidding me? You're asking me that. I, don't you see the indentation on my forehead where I just came from? Like, I know this stuff. Don't you see this leather-wrapped stuff so tight around me? Like, I, I know this stuff. You, you're going to ask me that. So it's a perfect question for this guy. He's, he's probably thinking, huh, okay, here you go. Deuteronomy 6, blah, blah, blah. But he did understand that there was this correlation between this inheritance of eternal life and obedience to God. So Jesus' very questions were asked knowing that the lawyer's answers would be built on Deuteronomy 6, what this guy already knew. But the way this lawyer knew the law was pretty different from Jesus. To understand how Jesus viewed this law, you'd have to look back at Hebrews chapter 6. And we don't have time to go through that text. But just to give that to you as a reference, you could read that for yourself, and it will shed some light to you as to how he understood that law. Now, what we have here is a really bright guy. right? He's, he's, he's pretty smart. This lawyer brought in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. He kind of brings them together, ties them in a light, nice little bow, and he gives it back to Jesus and says, there you are. How do you like that answer? Right? And so here we have it, but... He didn't give Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18's verse in its entirety. Let's read that verse in its entirety. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, the phrase to keep in mind from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 is this. Against the sons of your own people. And the reason to keep that in, in the back of your mind is because the way that people like this lawyer, like people in that day, would interpret loving your neighbor as yourself was in light of being a son of your own people. It was in light of that. So the way that they defined a neighbor was someone who was familiar to them. Someone who was like more of kin to them. Not the outsider. Right? The son of your own people was, hey, this, the people that we, we know, that we're familiar with. So they kind of totally botched that teaching. And, and they made it an, an, a, a teaching of intolerance, an, a teaching of exclusivity, a, a belief that it was just them, these Jewish folks. And anyone outside of that doesn't fall into that. Now, if you do believe that you can determine who your neighbors are, isn't that pretty easy to love them? If you can decide, oh, that's my neighbor, so it's not that hard to love them, right? But if your neighbor's pretty wide open, 
as Jesus is going to show us, that's, that's the real deal. And so this is the backdrop of what's going on with the conversation between the lawyer and Jesus. This lawyer who believes that his neighbor were you know, the sons of my own people, of his own people. Meaning those who were familiar to him. And anyone outside of that, they didn't have to be loved as yourself. So those guys are out there. This is so different from Jesus. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. He said in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Now let's give this lawyer some credit because he did successfully give Jesus the right answer. He did say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. It was the right answer. What does the heart mean? With all your heart. It means from the center of your emotions, where where your passion comes from. What does soul mean? What, what is all your soul? It's, it's who you are at the deepest core. Who you really, really, really are in there. Where, where the life everlasting is birthed out of you. That's where that's at. Strength. With all of our strength. That's, that's our effort. That's our determination. That's our drive. That's our ambition. Our energies. Our motivations. All that we can do of ourselves to lay before God. That's, that's our strength. And with all our mind. Our mind, our, our, our character, our understanding, our conscience. That's our mind. So an absolutely great answer from this lawyer. I mean, he was spot on. And after he gave his answer, he was probably waiting for Jesus' reply so that if Jesus gave any other answer, he would say, false teacher, I caught you. Because I know this law stuff really well. And you didn't tell me the law. But Jesus agreed. Verse 28, And He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And I tend to think that this lawyer was just hoping. He was just hoping that Jesus would give him a different answer so that he could argue about it. And debate him about it. And I tend to think that because of verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself. He didn't just end it there. He wanted something more. Said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now before we go any further, let's take a closer look at verse 28. Because I think it's important. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Right? Do this. Now, sometimes in Christian circles, we, we tend to throw out the law. Or all the Old Testament stuff. You know, that, that's, that stuff, you know, that's the, that's the Old Covenant. Just stick with the New Covenant. Just, it's all about the New Testament. Forget about that. And I've heard that from pastors actually confront me on it when we were going through our last book, which was 1 Samuel, an Old Testament book. And so they would confront me on these things, asking me, well, why are you teaching that stuff? It's the, that's the Old Testament. You need to focus on the New But here we find Jesus agreeing with the lawyer and he's quoting from the Old Testament. Do this and you will live. And we can't throw out the Old Testament. Jesus is telling us to do this in reference back to Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. In reference back to Leviticus 19 verse 18. The New Testament was not meant to be thrown out. Right? Those to throw out those ethical and those moral mandates of the Old Testament. That was not meant to be. That the New Testament actually supports those ethical, moral mandates of the Old Testament. The New Testament ethics and morality, those were built on the Old Testament. You can't throw that out. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's what He came to do. He came to fulfill them. So in their definition of, of the sons, right, of my people, it was just such 
a small definition of what they came up with. Jesus didn't come to abolish that. That's right. That's what the Old Testament says. But He's come to fulfill it, to give a clearer picture, a more comprehensive sense of what that meant. And so He says, do this and you will live. It doesn't mean that He had the opportunity to earn it. That's not what that means in terms of doing something. Do this and you will live means that the one who has inherited eternal life will be identifiable. That you will be able to see them because he or she does things that signify a follower of Jesus. So you can see it. Not that they earned it. Does that make sense? So we can't earn inheritance to eternal life, but the signs that we have inherited eternal life are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So these are things that we do as a sign of our inheritance of eternal life and that others can see. Luke chapter 8, verse 15, Jesus said, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So God does something within us. He works within us. And from that, there's this manifestation of what has been done. We are transformed from within. And that is exhibited by what we do. Not the other way around. We don't do things to earn that transformation and that manifestation. So how do we know we know God? It's the same in the old as in the new. And what it boils down to is love. It's what it boils down to. In the old, we have passages like Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. In the New Testament, we have passages like Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. And it reads this. Paul wrote this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. And we have passages like 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. It reads this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. People who have inherited eternal life do love God, do love people. And loving God and loving people are indicators that we have inherited eternal life. Conversely, Not loving God and not loving people are indicators that we have not inherited eternal life. So when Jesus says, do this and you will live, that lawyer knew he wasn't doing those things. Right? He knew that. And you and I know we can't be absent of the Holy Spirit in our lives and and do this stuff. We need God. And even when God is with us, it's still so difficult because we're so weak and we're so disobedient and we don't listen. And so we still can't love God and love people even when the Holy Spirit's within us. But thank God for repentance. Thank God for confession. Thank God that He had a plan to redeem us from our sins, that Jesus came and died for us on the cross, wiped us clean from that, so that we appear righteous before a holy God. Now notice what the lawyer does instead of confessing, instead of repenting. What does he do? Verse 29, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So rather than confessing, repenting, you know what, Jesus, you're right. You got me. And, you know, I I haven't been doing those things to inherit eternal life. I know them. I can quote Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. I can quote Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. I know all that stuff in my head. But you know what? I don't know it in my heart, and I need you. And, And I can't do it. Instead of doing that, this guy has the audacity to ask Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Smarty pants. And Luke writes to us that this guy desired to justify himself. Just a critical cynic, not a sincere, genuine seeker. This is a guy looking for an argument. 
we know that we can't do it on our own. And yes, we'll have indicators that we have inherited eternal life. But how many of us have become perfect after we accepted Jesus into our lives? And and sure, there are signs that we love God, we love people, but how many of us are spot on with every second of our lives? We need Jesus. Continually, we have to keep going back. And how often do we rely on ourselves rather than rely on Jesus? And so here we have this lawyer who knew the law really well. He knew his Bible really, really well. He memorized the first five books of the Bible. He knew the Torah. He knew that Pentateuch. But he didn't use it to change his heart towards God. He just kind of knew it in his head. So he was able to give these answers. And he's able to justify these different things. But it it didn't change his life. Now, how many of us are like this? Where we know the Bible. We grew up with it. We've read all the stories. We went to Sunday school all our life. We we know all the stories. We we know if you say something, oh, that's that's about in this chapter and verse of this Bible. And and we know all that stuff. But you're not transformed by God. You kind of have it in your head, but you don't have it in your heart. And you have a ton of Bible knowledge, but who you are isn't like Jesus. And you talk like Jesus, but you don't live like Jesus. And you notice when Jesus met this critical, cynic, antagonistic guy and this lawyer, he didn't debate him. He didn't debate him on biblical things or theological things or philosophical things. He didn't go there. And don't think for a second it's that because Jesus couldn't. Jesus would have schooled this clown. Right? He, this book is about him. He inspired it. He authored it. This is, about, this is his book. Right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't enter into theological debate. Why is that? Why does he not do that? Because changing someone's mind biblically, philosophically, theologically, doesn't equate to transforming someone's life. And being in submission to Jesus, it doesn't do anything when, when it's just kind of that debate stuck up here. Right? See, it's not about winning a theological debate, a biblical debate. It's about winning souls. That's what Jesus is about. And even though he could win this debate, he can make this guy look like a fool. He doesn't go there. And that's really important for us to remember. When, when we enter into these theological debates, which oftentimes people want to do. They want to, I don't know why, but they want to debate these theological points, philosophical points, biblical points. Now, are we wanting to be right about those things? Or are we about winning souls? To put our energy towards winning souls. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Right? He didn't come to prove himself right theologically, biblically, even though he can. He's very capable of that. So we must ask ourselves, what fight are we fighting? Are are we wanting to be right? Or are we wanting to win souls? And how many of us have entered into a debate with someone about Jesus but it didn't do anything for either one of your souls. It it didn't. In fact, it made you kind of feel like, I don't want to associate with Christians. They're just kind of nasty. And even though that person's right, he's just so nasty when he's right. I can't imagine when he's wrong. Right? And so it's just ugly sometimes, the, the type of debates that we get into, the type of arguments that we get into. And you see, Jesus knew exactly what this lawyer needed, and he didn't need any more Bible. Right? He didn't need another serving of Bible pie, right? What this guy needed was a slice of humble pie. And, and sometimes I feel like that with some Christians. Right? They, they just want more Bible. Oh, let's, let's have more Bible. We'll have another Bible study, and we'll, do, we'll study more of this. We'll have more classes, and we'll do all this. And they just want to start keep, they just want to keep accumulating Bible knowledge, which is awesome if you exercise what you intake. If you do not exercise what you intake and you keep on taking in this Bible knowledge, you're going to get really spiritually unhealthy. You're going to be spiritually constipated. 
Right? You're just gonna, you're just there. And it's not that what you're taking in is bad. It's actually really good, nutritious stuff. It's excellent stuff. But no matter how good it is, if you just keep on intaking, you just sit there, you're gonna get unhealthy. You need movement. You need to exercise. You have to, you have to make that nutritious food do something. And, and you can't just eat, sit there eating Bible bonbons. Right? Just like, oh, just one more bonbons. And I'm going to watch these uh, Bible bonbon infomercials. Oh, that's really great. What he's saying on the television. What he's saying on the radio. And what I listen to on sermons on, on iTunes and streaming. And I'm just, oh, these books. I'm just eating bonbons all the time. And, and you're talking about bonbons all the time. You are so unhealthy. You got to go do something. You got to go have a movement. Right? So, so it has to translate into transformation. You have to exercise what you're putting in. Otherwise, you just get constipated with that stuff. It has to affect your soul. So, are we here to test Jesus? Or are we here to trust Jesus? And see, I, I don't think the majority of the problems we have are rooted in theology. I really don't. I don't think it's rooted in Bible. It's that the theology, it's that the Bible hasn't moved from our head to our heart. Right? And, and if it doesn't, it doesn't affect who we are. We, it just gets stuck here. But it has to change who we are. And you notice that the lawyer wasn't concerned about who he was. Who he was to be as a child of God. He said back in verse 25, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? Back to accumulating knowledge. Back to seeing, oh, I memorized those first five books. It's not a big deal if I memorize another five. Or if I do something else. So what do I do? It wasn't a manifestation of transformation of what God did in him. He was looking for something that he could do to inherit eternal life because I think he saw himself as a very very capable person. He had abilities. He was really bright. He was a lawyer. He was an expert of the law. Theologically, he had it in his head. He thought he was all that. He had it. So instead of entering a theological debate with someone who thinks that they know it all, Jesus gives him what he really needs And it's humility. And Jesus enters the work of transformation by going into his emotions, going into his soul, going into his motivation, his conscience. The very things that he answered Jesus with in verse 27 after Jesus asked, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he enters into that place. And how does Jesus do this? He tells him a story that's not in the Bible. See how brilliant Jesus is? Because if Jesus refers back to the Torah, this guy goes back into his head. Oh, I know that. And he starts spouting and memorizing. This is, a, this is a very bright guy. And so here's the first verse of the story. Jesus has a story. Still biblical in principle, but just not directly in there. And, he's, and he said this. Jesus replied, verse 30, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, Jesus is so smart. You notice how Jesus didn't give any indication of who this man was. None. Right? No ethnicity. No nationality, no age, no status, no religion, no nothing. Jesus just said, Amen. A man who was robbed, a man who was stripped, a man who was beaten, left for dead. He is an unknown man who is in need, and there's no way for this lawyer to label him whether he is or is not a son of his own people. He's not given that information. Jesus just said, Amen. See how brilliant he is? So Jesus takes the lawyer's labeling of people, because that's what he would have thought if this guy was a neighbor or not. And who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes into the story and he just says, Amen. Totally takes it off the table by simply just saying, Amen. So smart. And this is us. 
This is us. Aren't you so glad that Jesus, that God, didn't label us anything that can be used against us? Nothing. We're just humans. And that He sees us as His children without any discrimination. We're His children. Thank God for that. And because Jesus looks at us in this way and makes it possible for us to be like Him, to extend that same love to others without discrimination... Now the distance from Jerusalem to Jericho, just to give you some geography and to give you some background in this story so that you can picture it in your head, it's about 15 to 20 miles. Right? If you, if you Google map it, it's going to be a lot longer because you have to take a road. But the Roman road is a lot more direct. And it's about 15 to 20 miles. And so there's a change in elevation there too of over 3,000 feet. So that's just to give you some background there. And this is a road that Jesus himself traveled before. This is a road that he is familiar with. It's a common road. It's a road that is still there. Parts of it are still there. You can go to Israel now and still walk on this road. Parts of it are there. And so this is a road that is commonly known. Back in this day, everyone would know this road. It's kind of like saying, oh, the 80. And as you can tell, I'm from Southern California because I put the before 80. The 80. And so... That's kind of like this Roman road. It's, it's a very common road. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows that robbers being there, very commonplace. It's kind of like us saying like International Boulevard at dark, not a safe thing to do, to walk by yourself. Right? It's, it's common. We, we all know this. So along that route, there are a ton of rocks. A lot of places that people can hide and just come out and ambush you. And, and so Jesus gives us this scenario about these robbers and things like that. Nothing out of the ordinary. This is probably true to life. Then he goes into telling us about these three different people and their responses. And then and that's, this is what we'll go into now. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now this is really fascinating. Jesus using a priest in this story is really interesting because a lawyer would sometimes pull this kind of double duty job thing. That when they were a lawyer, they were practicing the law. They were an expert in the law. But along with that, many of these lawyers would also have this double duty as a priest because they knew the law so well. So they were a temple priest as, long, as well as a lawyer. So they would kind of do this dual duty thing. Uh, when they were priests in the temple, they acted as priests. Outside of that, they acted as lawyers. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if this guy was the sort of guy that fell into this double duty. And that Jesus was inserting this lawyer into that role as a priest, walking down the road, ignoring and passing along. It wouldn't surprise me at all that Jesus would do that. And verse 31 tells us that the priest was going down that road, meaning that he was leaving Jerusalem. Because whenever you go to Jerusalem, it's always up to Jerusalem. If you look at word searches in the Bible, it's always up to Jerusalem. You never go down to Jerusalem. Always up. So this guy is leaving from Jerusalem to Jericho the same way that this half-man, half-dead man went. And we know this in the Bible because that's how it's recorded for us. You always go up to Jerusalem. So he's going down the same road. Verse 32, So likewise a Levite, another, another clergy person, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. Did the same thing as the priest. So here we have two religious men who saw the condition of this half-dead man and they did nothing. And since they were leaving Jerusalem, and since this guy is identified as a priest, he was probably coming from temple. Because his duty was not as a lawyer. He was identified as a priest. So it's probably like us. When we leave church and we see these urgent needs around us and things, and we just kind of like walk alongside of them. Yet, we just came from church. If at any time we were going to act on something of compassion, it would be at this time. After the service. But here we have this guy. He's just leaving temple. And he walks on the other side. And something to keep in mind is that these are really, really reputable people in their communities. They are highly regarded. A priest and a Levite were people that were held in high esteem because they worked in the temple. 
Right? They, they had temple duties. People looked at them as righteous people. And no one would ever question what these guys, what these guys did because they were held in such high regard. Whatever they did, that was the right thing. So in, in, in the people's audience, in the audience's mind that are hearing this story, they're either thinking, can they be wrong? That doesn't seem right. Or they're thinking, oh, there's a good reason why they walked around. Like maybe, he was, maybe that guy was unclean and they didn't want to disturb themselves from being unclean or whatever. But the funny thing is, if that's what they were worried about, they were leaving temple. They weren't going to temple. Be dirty. right? So, so their roles as a priest, as a Levite, these were roles that were passed down to them, right? Generation to generation. Their ancestors were also Levites, were also priests, and it was just kind of passed down to them. Why is that important? Because nothing was evaluated on their individual merit. It was just kind of given to them. They were given this free pass because they had this role and this title. And so they just inherited righteousness. They just inherited this reputation and this status and this position. It wasn't really them. They didn't develop it themselves. They didn't mature into that role. There wasn't a lot of accountability there. So they were free to impose their legalism, which is very evident in Jewish law because they they make way more laws. They have hundreds of laws in addition to the Bible. And so that's what these guys were doing. And so in verse 33, Jesus throws out, but a Samaritan. What did he just say? Did he just say what I think he just said? He said Samaritan. Now, I don't think anyone listening to this story, including that lawyer who was listening to Jesus tell that story, thought that Jesus was going to reach down that deep into the barrel and pull out a Samaritan. I think they were probably thinking that Jesus was was going to bring up someone like a layperson. Because he brought up a priest, he brought up a Levite, and he's going to next bring up like, oh, Joe over there. And use Joe as an example. He doesn't do that. He, he went to the bottom of the barrel and he picked up a Samaritan. And what this caused people to do was perk up their ears. Like, what did he just say? He just said a curse word. He said Samaritan. And so everyone's attention here is like, how can this guy use Samaritan in a story? Now, for some of you, this, this might not be a big deal to you. Or you're still not kind of grasping it because you don't know the, the, the depth of kind of the rivalry or the, the disgust that Jews had against Samaritans. Let me try to paint a picture for you. Last week, Ken shared about how he used to view Filipino women and that they were subhuman because of his, his own upbringing in Hong Kong. And I understand where he was coming from because I have relatives in Hong Kong too and they just viewed Filipino women, their maids and their cooks and things just as property. There's nothing big. They just, the, the ones that were working for my relatives just lived in a room that was able to fit a twin bunk bed and that was it. And if they weren't working, they were just in their room or they had to go outside. They couldn't hang out in the living room or, or anything. They had to do their chores and either be in their room or they had to leave. And they were just viewed as like, Worse than a pet. The pet would get some affection and the pet would get some acknowledgement and things like that. They were viewed as, as nothing. Just workers. And so he used to think that they didn't possess any human dignity as other people did because they were thought of as an inferior race and, and many people whom, who had them work for them thought the same thing or think the same thing still back in Hong Kong. And so he was brought up with this. And so for him to go to the Philippines and have to minister to Filipino women, God did a beautiful thing. It's, it's not coincidence that Ken was part of this internship class, and this internship class went to Cebu to minister to Filipino women who were human trafficked. It's not a coincidence. Out of all years, Ken could have been an intern. This is the first year we've gone to the Philippines. And how beautiful it was to witness Ken give his testimony about how God changed that perception in him, how God changed the heart in him, and how Ken used to view Filipino women was how the Samaritan was viewed in this culture by this lawyer. Just junk. Substandard. Subhuman. Nothing. 
And this is how the audience that Jesus was teaching viewed Samaritans. Nothing. Just subhuman people. They're not people. Jesus goes to the bottom of the barrel and he picks the Samaritan up. And he uses him as an example. And he says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now we can read from this parable that the Samaritan had some means. right? He, he, he shared with the stranger his own means. So he had some first aid supplies. He had some um, oil. He had some wine. Back then those were things that were used for wound care. He had some sort of animal, a packing animal. So most likely a donkey. He had some financial means to pay for the inn and to also pay the innkeeper to take care of this, this guy until he got better. But that's, those aren't the things that really set him apart. Because a priest and a Levite were well-to-do people. They had means too. They would be able to do all this stuff too. They would be able to pay an innkeeper to keep this guy. They would be able to pay for all this stuff. The thing that really sets the Samaritan apart from the priest and the Levite is compassion. That's what really sets him apart. The priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, they were all on their way somewhere. They all saw this guy. And while the priest and the Levite, they passed on the other side, even though they all have means. Those guys weren't broke. Only the Samaritan had compassion on this unknown man. So we... It's like us. We, we all see needs around here. You just go out to the street. There is a need. This is Oakland. There's always a need. You can't walk down any of these streets and not see a need. So all three of these guys saw needs, but only one had compassion and acted on it. The robbers did a terrible thing. They, they stole from this guy. They stripped him naked. They, they beat him. They left him half dead. The clergy, the priests, the, the Levites, they, they did a horrible thing. They saw this guy in desperate need of care. He's half dead and they just walked on the other side. They ignored him. The looked down upon character, the unexpected hero in this story, the Samaritan, is the one who had compassion and did something. No one would expect robbers to have compassion. Everyone would expect a priest and a Levite to have compassion. But it's the Samaritan who has compassion and did something about it. And this is a shocking thing to the lawyer and the audience. They can't even fathom that that guy would come up? That guy came through? The Samaritan? Seriously. So Jesus had their attention and Jesus pointed out that having compassion is the distinctly different thing. It's not about the means and not about the giving. Thing. We all have some means that we can help some way. It's compassion. Negligence from those you would expect would take action and action from someone you would deem as subhuman. That's Jesus is an awesome teacher. How he pulled that out. That story placed that lawyer into it and kind of showed him it's not about your knowledge. It's your, your humility is lacking. And he used such an ironic character in the Samaritan to show the failure of the priest, the failure of the Levite, who was the very lawyer he was probably talking to. He probably filled those roles. And Jesus was showing him how the Samaritan was engaged in compassion, in love, in faithfulness of God. That, that, the God, that God revealed to the lawyer in the Torah is, is actually a much more compassionate and loving God that he ever thought. That he ever studied about. That Jesus, God incarnate, was right in front of his face, in front of his eyes, teaching him, living before him, being God's plan of salvation and compassion right in front of his face. That even Jesus, God himself, was not going to walk right by this guy and ignore him. 
that he was going to address this lawyer, that he had some wounds, that he had some nakedness to address, that he had to be kind of healed and stuff like that. He, he, he was going to be a God that came to where that lawyer was at to see him and not just walk by, but to address him in a loving confrontation, a gentle confrontation. That's what he does for us. He comes to us where we're at. He sees us. He sees that we've been taken advantage of. He sees that we've been beaten up, that we've been stripped naked, that we've been left for dead, but he doesn't walk by. He has compassion on us, and he does something about it. And he died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead on the third day to conquer death. He has compassion for all of us. He stopped over 2,000 years ago to do something about it. And a couple of the evidences that we are of Jesus are that we have compassion. And that we are like Jesus and that we show mercy. And it's not that you go to church. It's not that you know the Bible. It's not that you do religious things or you look a certain way or you talk a certain way or you do these other things appropriately. Those are all good things. Don't get me wrong. Those are good things. But without mercy, without compassion in your life for people, regardless of who they are, all those good things are useless. All that Bible knowledge is useless. All, all the, the good things that you do, all the going to church, all that stuff is useless if you have no compassion in your life for people. And sometimes we have a really hard time thinking that the grace of God works through the least likely of people. Right? We as a church, we might fall into this. You might fall into this. You might feel so low and you're looking at you know, the church staff like the priest or the Levites. That they do all the service, they do all the ministering, they do all the reaching out to people and outreaches and, and things like that. And, and they are the ones that do the compassion stuff and the mercy stuff. Please don't think that. Because in this story, those are the, one, those are the people that don't have it. And I find myself guilty of that too because I'm just insulated in this church bubble and trying to serve these needs. Sometimes I might not even notice something that you can. That you are, you're more sensitive to those outside things that, that walking by the road and you see something that, that you are worthy. You can be called to do something because you have compassion and the Lord is going to use that and the Lord can use you if you allow yourself to be a compassionate person. You don't need all the Bible training. You don't need all the theology training. Sure, it's good. It's good stuff. But if it doesn't go from your head to your heart, it's no good. But if you have compassion, the Lord can use that regardless of how you're viewed. Regardless of the lack of training you have, regardless of how you feel you are so incapable of serving people. If you're a Christian, you feel that you know a lot of the Bible, and you do church things, and you come all the time, please don't be like the priest and the Levite. In that when you notice things, you just kind of skirt around them and ignore them. Rather, repent. Don't go back to Jesus and say like, um, who's my neighbor though? Right? Address it. Confess your sin, repent of it, extend mercy, extend compassion, extend love. That's what we do as followers of Jesus. We have these second chances over and over again. We can repent. And the Samaritan was the only one who was identifiable by loving God and loving his neighbor. And this is no doubt a really, really surprising end of the story for this, this lawyer. He probably had no clue that Jesus was going to bring up a Samaritan. And by Jesus using the Samaritan as a hero of the story, Jesus just removed all the titles, all the status, all the positions of anyone who thinks that they can inherit eternal life because of who they are. Well, my, all my family were priests. All my family were Levites. 
So I'm obviously God, a godly person. I'm going to go to heaven. It is not that way. It is very individual. You don't just get past the baton and you get a free pass to heaven. We each have a decision to make. And so Jesus kind of removes all this stuff and he says, no titles, no roles, no status, nothing, because those aren't the things that we're going to be striving for anyway. We're going to be about extending compassion, extending mercy, extending love, loving people. That's what we're going to be about. And so it's not about any of that stuff. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, there, there have been this series of back and forth questions between the, the lawyer and Jesus. And here's Jesus' final question in the story and the lawyer's reply. Verse 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So the question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, am I a neighbor to those who are in need? Am I extending love, compassion, mercy as a follower of Jesus? Not out of some guilt-ridden obligation or something that's from you that thinks you can earn uh, eternal life through it, but as an expression, as an indication of who you are, who you really are in Jesus Christ. And what is the proof that transformation within has taken place? Who the guy is, not the issue. Who the neighbor is, is not the issue. It's not about color, ethnicity, social class, any of that stuff. All those things are non-issues. We're people. We're all people. And you notice that the lawyer can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. Right? He said, the one who showed him mercy. can't even say the Samaritan. And so keep, keep that in mind that, that the way of the Good Samaritan is not the way to eternal life with Jesus Christ. You can't earn your way to eternal life. The way of the Samaritan is the way of life for the follower of Jesus Christ who has already inherited eternal life. And so that's just your way of life because you have eternal life. So in closing, let me just ask us some questions to just reflect on and to think about during worship. And then I'm going to close with a verse from 1 John. So this series of questions. Are we doing good works because we think it earns our way into heaven? Or are we doing good works because that's an expression of who we are in Jesus Christ? It's just who we are. Are we wanting to win an argument? Or are we wanting to win souls? Are we debating the gospel and delivering it just theologically? keeping it in the head rather than living it and delivering it holistically, so emotionally, socially, uh, physically, in all these different aspects, just like in verse 27, right? Heart, soul, mind. Are we more concerned with who our neighbor is rather than concerned with whether we are a good neighbor to anyone who's in need? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, John wrote this, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word. We thank you for it. And Lord, we ask that it doesn't just stay in our heads but that it moves into our heart, that it moves into our very being, that it transforms us. Not just to be a story for us to regurgitate verbatim, but something that we live, something that we are. And I pray, God, for anyone here who has questions and is genuinely seeking a relationship with you, that, Lord, as they ask you questions, Lord. I know you will deliver in kindness those answers and that you would supply them people 
to also help them with that journey. Lord, I also pray for folks who are struggling at this time now, Lord, that have a relationship with you, but they're just struggling. And I ask, God, that you would bless them. That you are the father that welcomes them back, just like that story of the prodigal son, that you were just anxiously waiting for them, and when you see them on the horizon, you run to them. And that you're so kind. And so I pray, Lord, that they, can, they walk those steps towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.